What does the oxygen do when you walk into the room? On a recent facility tour with a client, we heard from a very bright technician about a particularly technical part of their operation. Technically, he was over my head, and I started to drift, noticing photos and awards and diplomas on his office wall. Numerous accommodations from his time in the Navy, but the one that grabbed my attention was a photo of a naval submarine. After several in our group was wrapping up the Q&A, I asked the question, can you tell us about your submarine experience in the Navy? He lit up and began to tell us his experience on a nuclear submarine during his tour of duty in the Navy. We were all captivated by his stories of being cramped up for many months, the technical specifications, the control of the noise, should there be an enemy submarine nearby. But what fascinated me the most was his proudly declaring, I was responsible for the oxygen. He explained that the oxygen on board a submarine is released either through compressed tanks, an oxygen generator, or some form of oxygen canister that works by electrolysis. Oxygen in a submarine is either periodically released throughout the day at specific time intervals, or whenever the computerized system detects a reduction in those oxygen levels. The most fascinating part of the conversation was when he told us of certain conversations he had with the captain of the submarine in which certain behavior was desired and or needed modified. As he described, when the men or women were a little restless due to adverse conditions, so let's say rough seas, the captain would direct my friend to reduce oxygen levels, creating a more melancholy mood. When the situation required more alertness, the captain would order more oxygen, creating more of a heightened awareness. In my workshops, I spend quite a bit of time discussing IQ and EQ, emotional intelligence. The emotional intelligence is how we connect with other people. I, like many others, believe one's EQ, emotional intelligence, is a better predictor of life success than one's IQ. Ironically, and before this interaction, I had periodically defined emotional intelligence as what happened to the oxygen level when you walk into a room. We all know that person that when they walk into a room, it lights up. We rush to greet them, and in most cases, they're rushing to greet us. They ask questions, and they're excellent listeners. They're genuinely concerned about us. In short, the oxygen level increases. The converse is true. We all know that person that when they enter a room, the oxygen masks drop. It's all about them and their horrible listeners. They never ask about others, only what's going on in their lives. So the key question is, what happens to the oxygen level when you walk into a room? You know, you don't have to say anything very often. We've all been in that situation when we're trying to console someone and have no idea what to say. For me, I usually walk away feeling like my words didn't help that much at all. Most try to relay a similar experience as to communicate, I know how you feel, when we really don't know how they feel. When I lost my job, a friend called me and simply said, 
Greg, I'm sorry. That was the most consoling of all the calls. Sociologist Charles Durber describes the tendency to insert oneself into a conversation as conversational narcissism. It's the desire to take over a conversation, to do most of the talking, and to turn the focus of the exchange to oneself. It is often subtle and usually unconscious. Derber writes that conversational narcissism is the key manifestation of the dominant attention-getting psychology in America. Derber describes two kinds of responses in conversations, a shift response and a support response. The first shifts attention back to yourself, and the second supports the other person's comment. Here's a simple illustration. A shift response when my friend says, I'm so busy right now, and I respond, me too, I'm totally overwhelmed. That's a shift response versus a support response when my friend says, I'm so busy right now, I respond, why are you so busy? What do you have to get done right now? Here's another example. In a shift response, my friend says, I need some new shoes. And I respond, me too. These things are falling apart that I have. That's a shift response. A support response would be when my friend says, I need new shoes. I might respond, oh yeah? What kind of shoes are you thinking about? Shift responses are a hallmark of conversational narcissism. They help you turn the focus constantly back to yourself. But a support response encourages the other person to continue their story. In my quest to become the best version, I'm trying to be more aware of my instinct to share stories and talk too much about me. I'm trying to start asking more questions that encourage the other person to continue. I must admit, I'm struggling. How gritty are you? In our book, Grit, The Power of Passion and Perseverance, Angela Duckworth suggests one's grit, along with one's emotional intelligence, is a better predictor of success in life than talent or IQ. Grit is gender neutral, and it can be learned. And common words for grit are that tenacity and that never, never give up mentality. I had the opportunity to spend the day at Fort Benning Army Base in Columbus, Georgia, home of the Army Rangers and Special Forces. Having lunch with the Special Forces team, I asked one of the members what separates them from everyone else. Without hesitation, this small-framed soldier responded, we never give up. He continued, Greg, no offense, but when the enemy has you pinned down to the ground, you're likely to break at some point. I will not. On the grit scale, he would be off the chart. Angela Duckworth offers a three-step process to enhance one's grit. Number one, identify your burning interest and passion. Number two, practice. Number three, develop a sense of higher purpose. Believe your passion will make a significant difference in yourself and in the life of others. Emotional intelligence, how we handle our relationships and ourselves. 
Our emotions are contagious and play a crucial role in our personal effectiveness and success. If we resonate energy and enthusiasm, our effectiveness and success will be enhanced. The converse is true. If we spread negativity, mistrust, fear, and intimidation, our effectiveness and success will be diminished. We excel just not through our skills and smarts, but how we connect with other people. In the Emotional Intelligence QuickBook, authors Travis Bradbury and Gene Graves describe four main components of emotional intelligence. Number one, self-awareness. Some helpful tools we've talked about in this audio version of Healing the Wounds, Forgiveness and Reconciliation in the Workplace are the Social Style Model, the Johari Window, and feedback from others. Step number two, self-management. Keeping your emotions in check, managing negative behavior, operating from your dominant social style versus your backup, and not zen out. Step number three in emotional intelligence is social awareness. Awareness of those clicks in your company, your effect on other people, your effect on your team, your organization, and helping others increase that arena from the Johari window. Step number four in emotional intelligence, relationship management. Aware of and commitment to repairing broken relationships. Recognize and appreciating others, developing new relationships, maintaining those current ones, and reconnecting with old ones. Again, the four key components of emotional intelligence. Number one, self-awareness. Number two, self-management. Number three, social awareness. Number four, relationship management. From both a life and organizational perspective, emotional intelligence is changing our concept of being smart. Emotional intelligence how we handle ourselves and our relationships, coupled with our intelligence, determine our life and career success. We've all witnessed someone with extremely high IQ, coupled with low EQ, crash and burn. Sadly, many people are hired on their expertise only later to be fired on their personality and lack of emotional intelligence. In the sports world, there are many examples of a winning coach fired after numerous self-destructive incidents and a low EQ behavior. Being likable and credible. Politically and from a nonpartisan perspective, many candidates are recruited based on their resume and defeated at the ballot box as a result of not connecting with voters. Or worse, they're simply unlikable. Hillary Clinton, again from a nonpartisan observation, is perceived to be unlikable. Hence the book by Edward Klein entitled Unlikable. Former President Bill Clinton, on the other hand, was and today is perceived as being very likable and credible. Former President George Bush, number 43, is perceived as being likable but not always being credible. Ronald Reagan joins President Bill Clinton, in my opinion, as being both likable and credible. 
In your companies, in your organization, you have to be both likable and credible to have both IQ and EQ. Engagement. We follow leaders with whom we connect. In fact, numerous Gallup polls cite the number one reason for employee engagement is a personal relationship with one's immediate supervisor. A supervisor with high emotional intelligence that recognizes the link between relationship and performance. Unfortunately, our view of human intelligence has been narrowly focused, often ignoring a crucial range of abilities that matter immensely in terms of success in our own business and in our personal lives. Emotional intelligence may explain why people of high IQ flounder and those of modest IQ coupled with high emotional intelligence do surprisingly well. Emotional intelligence and job titles. Bradbury and Graves also make the connection between emotional intelligence and job titles. Their findings are both surprising and alarming. They found that emotional intelligence scores rise from frontline supervisors to middle management. But beyond middle management, there is a steep decline in emotional intelligence. For the titles of director and above, emotional intelligence scores sharply decline, with CEOs of companies on average having the lowest emotional intelligence scores. Explaining my earlier statement, that many CEOs are hired on their expertise and fired on their personality. Do you have a yes face or a no face? Thomas Jefferson and his modern-day Secret Service were riding cross-country on horseback when they came across a swollen river and the bridge had been washed out. On the river's bank was a man who needed a ride across the river. After scanning the group, the gentleman approached Thomas Jefferson and asked for a ride across the river. Jefferson, as the story told, obliges. After the short journey across the river, Jefferson lets the man off his horse and he trots away. The modern-day Secret Service scolds this gentleman by saying, How dare you ask the President of the United States for a ride across the river? You could have asked any of us, but you ask him. The gentleman's response, first of all, I didn't realize he was president of the United States. Secondly, some people in life have a yes face and some people have a no face. I simply ask the yes face. Overall, do you have a yes face or a no face at work? What about at home? What are the positions within your organization that require a yes face or maybe a yes voice? Do you have the right people in the right seat in these key positions? The optics. Actions often speak louder than words. And as leaders, we cast a shadow that follows us everywhere we go and can either attract others or cause them to go the other way. Unfortunately, in many cases, we're unaware of the message that's being sent by our actions. Take, for instance, the university president that parks every day in the closest spot with a sign that reads, Reserve Parking for the President. 
She only parks there because that's where her predecessor parked before her, unaware of the message that's being sent. Or New Jersey Governor Chris Christie and his family sunbathing on the beach he had just ordered closed to the public due to the government shutdown amid the state budget standoff at the Capitol. This optic ended his political career. Other organizational examples include, but not limited to, lavish customer entertainment, excessive drinking, executive perks, first-class travel, work hours, your dress, the decisions we make, and our automobile choice. What are your optics? Take a few minutes and list both ones you individually need to be more aware of and perhaps change and or modify. The Energy Bus. Writer John Gordon in his latest book, The Energy Bus, offers practical advice and universal themes of positive attitude in the form of a business fable. While usually not a big fan of such business fables, this book touched me and receives a great deal of comment during my workshop debriefs. Gordon provides 10 sensible, common-sense rules for approaching life with positive energy. The following are the 10 rules for the ride of your life. Number one, you're the driver of your bus. Number two, desire, vision, and focus Move your bus in the right direction. Number three, fuel your ride with positive energy. Number four, invite people on your bus and share your vision for the road ahead. Number five, don't waste your energy on those who don't get on your bus. Number six, Post a sign that says no energy vampires allowed on your bus. Number seven, enthusiasm attracts more passengers and energizes them during the ride. Number eight, love your passengers. Number nine, drive your bus with purpose. And number 10, have fun and enjoy the ride. And as Gordon writes, I've witnessed the amazing power of positive energy. Deep down, I know it matters, and I know it works. His rules will help you cultivate the positive energy in your own life. The Art of Communication and Building Rapport I usually start most workshops by telling participants my wife wanted me to relay a message to you before getting started. Greg sucks at this at home. So what I'm about to share are my thoughts as a communication practitioner, but most importantly, as someone who has failed miserably at many of these. Please feel free to add to this list. Authenticity is a must. If the other person thinks you're faking it, you're worse off than not communicating at all. Talk less, ask more questions. Use others' names throughout the communication. Bonus, use their children's name. Be brief. Spare the excruciating details. If others want more details, they'll ask for them. 
no epistles when texting others. The odds of the other person reading the entire text are slim to none, and Slim just left the room. Same with voicemail messages. Be brief. No close talkers. We all have personal space, so please don't invade mine. No quiet talkers. I shouldn't have to strain to hear you. No loud talkers. If the table next to you gives you that funny look, as to be saying, please, you may have broken this rule. Ask about the other person versus talking about you the entire conversation. Low-hanging fruit. How's your family doing? Are you enjoying your job? Tell me more about your trip. Personalize your voicemail. Don't waste this opportunity to make an impression. Avoid putting anything on social media that could make other people feel inferior. For example, that exotic vacation you just took, a new car purchase, your perfect kids receiving awards. Next, please refrain from ending sentences with, right? Please refrain from ending sentences with a rising inflection that almost sounds like a question, but not. Please refrain from starting a sentence with, so. Stop typing when someone enters your office. If a desk is between you and the other person, walk around and join them, removing the barrier. Never, ever, ever embarrass the other person by saying, you don't remember me, do you? If you have the least amount of doubt the other person doesn't remember you, introduce yourself again. They'll probably say, I know who you are, but do it anyway. When name tags are used, place it over the right side of your chest versus the left side where most pockets are. As most folks you meet are right-handed, reducing the awkward eyes as you shake hands, moving across your chest if they've indeed forgotten your name and just gotten caught. Send handwritten notes. Buy personal stationery. Use emojis, especially if the meaning of an email or a text could be perceived as curt. Avoid one-upping other stories and experiences. Avoid talking about experiences with others when someone in the group may have not been there and or a member of your clique. Avoid cursing. Have a firm handshake. No wimpy ones or death grips. Monitor your breath. Don't eat with mouth open or make smacking noise while eating. Watch your grammar. Most folks who have a problem with grammar usually only have it with a few words or issues like subject-verb agreement, and are usually aware of the problem. I googled grammar problems and multiple videos popped up. In short, it's easier than ever to correct this problem. Monitor your alcohol consumption. Never have your photo taken with an alcoholic beverage in your hand. Diversify. As a social scientist, I regularly observe the same races sitting together during workshops, social gatherings, etc. 
I sincerely think this phenomenon is unconscious, but it's noticeable nonetheless. Speak to be understood. Listen to understand. Get to the point and avoid rambling. Be polite. Thank you and please. Your stories should be short and sweet. Don't hold others hostage at social gatherings, meals, and etc. And don't monopolize conversations. Dance with the unpopular kid. Socialize with that person no one else does or no one else will. Don't leave spouses, significant others, and children out of conversations. Be here now. We've all been with that person that clearly is looking over our shoulder for the other person to enter the room. Take that annoying Bluetooth device out of your ear in public. If you must take that call, take it outside. No one else wants to hear it. Silence or vibrate phones in your meetings. It's amazing so many continue to ring in important meetings. Limit shop talk in social settings. Avoid bragging. Avoid controversial topics if possible. But if you must, attack issues, not people. And protect the self-esteem of others. If it gets nasty, cut it off. Share the big guy or big gal with other people in your company. Take the senior leader around and introduce her or him to other people. Be careful not to be perceived as brown-nosing. Erase no problem from your vocabulary. Replace it with my pleasure. Be careful with the word but. Its real meaning, disregard all previous information. Be the sale versus the anchor. Be sincerely happy for others. I saw a friend who had stopped drinking and lost 60 pounds. He looked amazing. I couldn't stop telling him how great he looked and how proud I was for him. He literally made my day by how he was radiating. I walked away wondering how being that sincerely happy for others is such a rarity. Sure, I may tell someone congratulations on that new job, but do I communicate with that same intensity I did with my friend who had just lost 60 pounds and stopped drinking? And lastly, leaders don't create more followers. Leaders create more leaders. The man in the glass. And my apologies for the non-gender inclusive language as this was copyrighted in 1934. When you get what you want in the struggle for self, and the world makes you a king for the day. Just go to the mirror and look at yourself and see what that man has to say. For it isn't your father or mother or wife whose judgment upon you must pass. The fellow whose verdict counts the most in life is the man staring back from the glass. You may be like Jack Horner and Chisel a Plum, and think you're a wonderful guy. But the man in the glass says you're only a bum if you can't look him straight in the eye. He's the fellow to please, never mind all the rest, for he's with you clear to the end, and you've passed your most dangerous, difficult test 
if the man in the glass is your friend. You may fool the whole world down the pathway of years and get pats on the back as you pass, but the final reward will be heartache and tears if you've cheated the man in the glass. Considered an expert in human behavior and organizational dynamics, Greg Coker is the author of Building Cathedrals, The Power of Purpose, and the Soft Skills Field Manual, The Unwritten Rules for Succeeding in the Workplace. Greg's website is gregcokerdevelopment.com. He can be reached at 270-223-8343.